Father God, there's a lot of uh, things that run through our hearts and our minds today when we think of this idea of prayer. There's so many things, Lord, we think of. And yet, Lord, I know that one thing that we all have in common here this morning that I have to believe is that as ones who are interested in you and in what true communication with you looks like and sounds like and is like, that, God, we're interested in prayer. And so, Father, today as we talk about this subject of prayer, I pray, God, that you might give us insight into your word. I pray we'd understand it rightly. We believe your word is your truth to us and that guides us into a right understanding of you and how to relate to you this side of heaven. So I pray, God, that as we look at Philippians here today and what it challenges us to on prayer might cause us each to go deeper in our prayer life, have a more meaningful discussion with you on a regular basis. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So here's the deal, folks. Whether you know it or not, whether you live it or not, whether you even like it or not, what we learned last week as we started our study in the book of Philippians is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian here this morning, then what the Bible says is that God has an agenda for your life. He has a purpose for your life. And his purpose is for you to become what he's already declared you are as a follower of Jesus. It's true. It's one of the things that the Bible makes clear from multiple vantage points that the moment you became a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, that God declared certain things now true about your life and that he calls you now to live out those things that are true about you. And so, for instance, the Bible says that when you became a Christian, you're now a new creation. The Bible says that you've crossed over from death into life. It says that you're completely forgiven of all of your sins. It says that you now have been made righteous in God's sight. It says that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of power and hope in the midst of whatever, what, 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 anything that life might throw your way. In short, I love how Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says it. It says that he has blessed you in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. The moment that you became a Christian, everything changed in how God sees you and even in reality the very position you have before, before God. And you're now poised to live up to what he says is true about you. And yet once you get that, as we also saw in our introduction last week, that when we're honest with ourselves, however, there's a tension here in that as much as God has said that these things are true about our lives, we know better. Amen? We know that as much as we're completely forgiven of our sin, we still sin. We know that as much as God has called us the righteousness of God, we're not very righteous at times. We know that as much as he has said, you're a new creation in Christ. You don't always feel like a new creation in Christ, especially when you're living out of your old self. In other words, there's a mismatch. There's a tension that we all feel between these things that God says are now true about us and what we're really like on a day-in and day-out basis. And so we asked the question last week, what do we do with that? How do we live that tension without going nuts? And this is where the book of Philippians comes in. Because in the midst of declaring all of these wonderful and powerful things that you and I now are because of followers of Christ, the book of Philippians also says, now here's what you can do to become what you are. Here are some things that you can do to live up to 
the truisms that God now declares about your life. So that's the whole point of the book of Philippians, is encouraging us about all these things that we are now in Christ, what we called the true you last week, but then at the same time saying, we understand that you fall short of that. Now here are some things you can do or become in your life to now live out of the true sense of your identity in Christ. And so taking us through topic after topic after topic in just four short chapters, literally nine topics we're going to look at, it shows us how we can become all the that we deep down want to be and certainly who God wants us to be. And as I mentioned before I prayed, it begins right here in chapter 1 with probably one of the most important and crucial issues of all, the issue of prayer. And so in keeping with our theme of you've already become certain things, and so now here's what you can do to grow more in Christ, look at our main point here this morning, and it's this. And that is that since you are a saint, And since a good work has begun in you, and since grace is now yours, and since you are full of righteousness, we're going to see the scriptures tell us all that is true about you, prayer now equals peace for you. It's true. Some of you don't believe it yet, but you will by the end of the day, that since all these things are true about you, what the scriptures say is that when you pray, you now can have peace. In fact, you should have peace each and every time you pray. So what do we mean by this? Well, I want you to notice with me how chapter 1 of Philippians strings together some amazing truisms right now that are true about you simply because of your salvation in Christ. You've got to latch on to this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. All the saints in Christ Jesus. If you underline in your Bible, I dare you to underline saints. Then look at verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Then verse 7. You are all partakers with me of grace. And then verse 11. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So now maybe you see Do you get the sense of you already are something simply because you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Notice that it says you're a saint. That word simply means God's holy people set apart for his use. We're not talking saint in the sense of perfect. We're not talking saint in the sense of more holier than thou. And we're certainly not talking about some super spiritual person who should be canonized like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or anything like that. No, the Bible is simply talking about somebody who has been adopted into God's family because of Christ, set apart and now called to a specific way of functioning and following him. It's a saint. And then look at verse 6. It says, as a saint, a good work has begun in you. God has begun something, a purifying, a purifying, a refining, a whittling process where he's now honing your character and your life to become all that he wants you to be. A good work has begun in you. We'll get more to that in a minute. And to make sure that this gets done, what do you have? You're a partaker of grace. That is probably one of the most powerful phrases in all of the Bible. You're a partaker of grace, which simply means that all of God's goodness, all of his grace, he now has opened up to you in Christ. All the resources of his mercy, his love, his kindness, his power have been opened up to you in Christ. You're a partaker of that. And then he caps it all up by saying you're also filled with the fruit of righteousness, which simply means that even if you're a brand new Christian here today, there's some fruit already in your life. 
Even that initial burst of joy that the Holy Spirit, because He lives in you, has now brought into your life. And so with all of this behind you, knowing that God is on your side, that He's in your life, that He's not going to leave, the Scriptures say then that because of this, when we pray, we have peace. It's unmistakable. Flip over to chapter 4, look at verses 6 and 7. This is what I'm talking about. You can't escape the implications. With the understanding of chapter 1, that you are these things, look at what chapter 4 says about our prayer life. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do not miss the link here, folks. Prayer equals peace. It's not complicated. And it's what every Bible commentator points out here, that the clear implication, that's not even implied, it's just overt, is that Paul's saying when you pray, you will have peace. It's fascinating. The original language that Philippians was written in the Greek language, Paul is actually using here a specific grammatical form called a parataxis, Parataxis. It's simply a fancy way of saying that he begins a sentence with the word and. We do that in English sometimes. We begin a sentence with and, or, or but. We begin it with a conjunction. And though it used to be when I was in third grade, you weren't allowed to do that. It's become really acceptable now, right? Like, it's okay to do. Well, back in the Greek days, you didn't usually begin a sentence with a conjunction. But if you did, you were trying to make a specific point. You were trying to link the two ideas together really closely, and they called it a parataxis. And so in verse 6 there, when Paul says, you need to pray, and then he begins verse 7 by saying, and, don't miss, he's just linking it really closely, saying, when you pray, peace is going to come into your life. That's his main point here. Pray and peace will come. And in describing this peace, let's not try to weasel out of this one. Notice with me that Paul clearly means by peace something that surpasses all human comprehension and will completely guard your heart and your mind. So it's not just some like mamby-pamby little kind of peace. Like, oh, I prayed and I feel a little better right now, but I'm going to feel worse in three seconds. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of peace in which you look back and say, whoa. Only God, I don't even understand this peace I have. Only God could give me a peace like that. Remember last week I told you, Philippians was a military town. So Paul is using military terms here. He says it's the kind of peace that if your heart was a military outpost, this kind of prayer is going to guard it. This kind of peace is going to guard your heart from anything else getting in. Pray and you will have peace. Now, With that all said, I want to get really honest with you guys and ask you how often this comes true for you. How often is it that when you pray, you have immediate and unmistakable peace? How often is that experience real for you? I'm guessing that if you and I were having a cup of coffee this morning, and I as your pastor and friend just said, just level with me, how often has it happened to you? The more godly of you would say, once in a while. The more godly of you would say, you know what, I had an experience back in 1999 where I prayed, and, and, and I had that kind of peace come, and it, and it lasted a little while, Jamie, and it was really cool, and it was awesome. But if I said, 1999, you do realize that it's 2011, right? I mean, when, when was the last time, you godly people, that, that, that you prayed and you had peace? The average Christian today 
would be hard-pressed to say that one, it happens regularly, two, that it would happen all the time. And yet the way that Philippians 4, 6, and 7 are written is that this is supposed to be the normative experience for the follower of Jesus. That no matter what you're going through, you're supposed to pray, and immediately when you pray, that peace is to come. And the question I want to wrestle with is why doesn't that happen to us more often? I mean, I know many of you pray. I pray. We pray all the time. We pray driving down the road. We pray in our offices. We pray at home. We pray before meals. We pray, we pray all the time. We have prayer meetings in this church all the time. And yet we have a lot of people walking around with non-peace. And so the question is, what are we missing? Why is it that we can pray and not get peace? Are the scriptures lying or are we missing something? I would suggest to you here that there are three things that Philippians 1, we're going to go back to chapter 1, says about our prayer life that if they are not true about our prayer life, then there's a good chance we won't have peace. Or let me say it this way. There's three things that Philippians adds to our prayer life that if you miss and don't have, there's a good chance that you're going to pray and not experience the peace of chapter 4. And I'm going to encourage you right off the bat as I share these three things with you. I'm not going to tell you to pray more here today. Aren't you tired of hearing that from pastors? I hear that all the time. When I, you know, I don't want to have peace when I pray. Well, just pray more. And I'm like, well, I'm already praying a lot. Well, just pray more. You know, you know, but pray more and more and more and more and more and you have peace. I, I, and there have been times where I prayed for hours on end, not had peace. And, and so I'm not sure there's always more that God is after. Remember the babbling pagans that Jesus talked about? He said, you can babble on and on and on in your prayers and get nowhere. So I'm not sure that those who say the answer is always more are right. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray more. If you walk out today saying, Pastor said we shouldn't pray more, you heard me wrong. I'm just saying that I'm not sure more is always better when it comes to the quality of our prayer life. Second thing I'm not going to do with you in the remainder of our time today is I'm not going to give you some creative little acrostic on how you can pray more concertedly. I did that in the Daniel series. So if you want to go back, it was a really cool acrostic called PAR, and you can go look at that, and you have the Acts acrostic and all that. But I'm going to really follow closely the text here, and the text, as usual, doesn't give us an acrostic. It just shares with us three things that need to be front and center in your prayers or you're not going to have peace. Here's the first one. We need to pray with thanksgiving. You need to pray with thanksgiving. Some of you are saying right now, you're thinking, I know how you think. You're thinking, well, Jamie, I do pray with thanksgiving. Next, I want you to slow down in front of this for a second because I'm not sure that we're all thanking God for the kind of things that bring us peace. Look at verses 3 and 5 and 6 of Philippians 1. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, then verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So he begins by saying, I thank my God. What's the content of my prayer? I thank God for you. And some of you are thinking right now, well, I mean, I thank God all the time in my life, but that doesn't necessarily bring peace. And so how can we sometimes thank God, even thank him for other people, and not experience his peace? And it's a good question. And the answer, though I don't mean to be too hard on us, but I'm going to point the finger back at me here too, is that if Paul the Apostle thanked God for what most American Christians today thank God for, I don't think he would have had a lot of peace in his prayer life. 
In other words, I'm going to suggest to you here this morning that one of the reasons that many of us don't experience peace when we're in a thankful mode before God is because, now listen close, it's not that we're thanking God for the wrong things. It's just that we're thanking him for things that are probably like number 49 or 50 on his thankful list, and we have yet to get into the top 10 of the things that he thinks that we should be thanking him for. And you're saying, well, what do you mean? It's fascinating. You can look closely here at the book of Philippians, read it on your own, maybe as your homework from here today, or any other New Testament book, and you will never find any of the apostles, the disciples, or Paul thanking God for their new chariot. You will not find them thanking God that their kids got into that exclusive Roman school. You will not find them thanking God that their retirement account in Athens was doing really well. You will not find them thanking God that the Jerusalem industrial average was up. You will not find them thanking God that they got promoted at work. You will not find them thanking God even all that often, if ever, for their health. Isn't that revealing? The things that you and I thank God for all the time. We're driving home from the car. Thanks, God, for this car. Thanks, God, for my health. Thank you that I got out of Mayo. Okay, thank you for this. And by the way, these are all good things, and I'm sure that the apostles and disciples were thankful for those things. It's just interesting, isn't it, that it never